Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles and I'm the host of the Sendcast. We started Sendcast a couple of years ago to help improve knowledge around SEND. Yes, there is lots of stuff you can go and read, but we're all extremely busy and we don't have time to sit and read. The Sendcast was created to help make schools more inclusive, to help teachers to support all pupils and to help support staff be more aware. The Sendcast is also a great way to get the same consistent message to schools and parents. In this episode, my guest is Wendy Lee. Wendy is a speech and language therapist with over 30 years experience in a wide range of settings. We will be discussing how to make the best use of resources to meet the needs of pupils with speech and language communication needs. The Sendcast is created and produced by us here at B Squared. Over the last 25 years, B Squared have supported schools to support students with SEND. Over the last few years, we have started to diversify. For years, we have focused on assessment, and this will always be our main focus, but we have seen a lack of high-quality, easy-to-access training and CPD for schools around SEND. Our online CPD offering, Training for Education, started two years ago with the Virtual Send Conference, but now includes a range of training courses as well as our conferences. You can find out more about our conferences and training courses by going to the Training for Education website, www.trainingforeducation.com. And at the end of the episode, I'll be sharing exclusive Sendcast discount code, so keep listening. Let's get on with the podcast. this week's show, we are exploring how to make best use of resources to meet the needs of pupils with speech language communication needs. This week, our guest is Wendy Lee. Wendy Lee has been a speech and language therapist for over 30 years with a wealth of experience. Wendy has been a professional director of the Communication Trust until 2015, being involved in a range of projects as well as inputting on national policy and research. Wendy is currently director of Lingo, which provides consultancy, professional development, resources, and speech and language therapy. Welcome to the show, Wendy. There's been lots of ways of supporting children with speech and language communication needs, but there is now lots and lots of evidence to help guide professionals to the most effective way to support children. Yes. So I think more than ever before, we do have evidence about what works when we're supporting children with speech, language, and needs but it is really the question is how to make best use of that evidence and also how to make best use of the things that we're already doing in schools or the resources that you already have and I guess the reason for talking about this is that schools are you know under a lot of pressure but also do have lots of things already in place so it's kind of thinking about you know how much of that those strategies, those resources and things that are working for the children and maybe where the gaps are. So certainly when we're working with schools, one of the first steps really is to find out, okay, what what's the nature of the children that you have in your schools? What's the nature of their needs? You know, do you have lots of children at, at high risk of having speech and language needs? Do you have lots of children that you've already identified? You know, one of the biggest challenges, I think, for children with developmental language disorder and other types of, of speech, language and communication difficulties is that they are massively under-identified. So, you know, without exception, there will be children in, you know, everybody's schools that aren't identified that do have underlying speech and language difficulties. 
for, for lots of reasons, these children can be quite difficult to identify. So it really is thinking about, you know, who are the children that we're, we're talking about? What are we already doing in our schools that really supports communication generally, but also language communication, speech sounds for those children that struggle? How well is that working and where are the gaps? So I think it really is um, looking at that big picture of, of all of that and, and thinking in the long term. So one of the things that came up, there was a big review done into children's speech, language and communication provision in 2008, which I know is a really long time ago, by John Burko. And then that review was updated in 2018. So looked at 10 years on from that original review and thinking about, okay, what are the current challenges for children? speech, language and communication. And this kind of updated review found that, yes, there were still lots and lots of challenges. And one of those was that, you know, a lot of the support that is happening in schools is not based on, on the evidence. And we know if we're putting time and effort into working with children, it has to make a difference. You know, it has to be outcome driven. It has to kind of improve the outcomes for the children and, and, and make that difference for them. There is a big push about evidence-based decision-making. So don't just buy that product because their website tells you how shiny and wonderful it is and it'll make such a big difference. Really actually find out who else has used it. Actually, where has it made a difference? Don't just take the company's word for it. Actually talk to other schools. Does anyone use this product? Does it work? What impact has it had? That's what everyone needs to do is use that evidence-based decisions. Yeah, so there are kind of various places you can go to look at the evidence base. That doesn't mean you have to go and dive into lots and lots of research. So there is the Educational Endowment Foundation. They do a lot of work around looking at different approaches, not just in terms of speech, language and communication, but across the board. And their main focus is those children that are in receipt of pupil premium. And so they, they do pieces of research. They, they have projects that are running, but they also have a toolkit of kind of strategies that work. So it's always useful to go to places like that just to kind of see what, what information is out there. There's an, another organization called the Early Intervention Foundation, and they do a similar piece of work looking at early intervention, not just around very young children, but things like, you know, what does early intervention look like for children in the youth justice system, for example, or what does early intervention look like in terms of supporting parents? So they look right very broadly. Um, but again, they do have information in there around um, speech language communication. And then the kind of third place to look is probably Communication Trust have got a What Works website, which has got different things that work uh, for children, again, with speech language and communication. And all of that information is really helpful because it gives you a starting point. You know, as Dale said, do talk to the people around you. Do talk to other colleagues, heads, um, to find out what's working in their schools. But I think, you know, that's part of the information gathering piece. And then it's really thinking about focusing on, on your children and what want your children to be able to do by putting some interventions or support in place that they can't do um, without that support. And for speech, language and communication, it's really important to be able to identify those kind of particular needs and be able to track that progress. So like you would with literacy or like you would with maths, we need to be able to know that, you know, this is kind of generally where the children are. And then this is what progress or good progress is looking like for those individual children. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
basically you are talking about the assess, plan, do, review cycle yeah. in lots of different places. And that's the thing. I think people get stuck up on the assess, plan, do, review thing is a, is a big thing. It's not. It is absolutely everywhere. So it is. You've got to sit there. And your first job is, as you said, is what's working, what's not. Yeah, so that's your assessing. That's your reviewing. And then it's thinking about, so what do we need, which is the planning, and then you're going to start implementing stuff, and then you're going to review it at the end to make sure it is actually working. And it goes through that whole school picture, also down to the individual children. What is it they need? What are we hoping to achieve? And is it achieving that? Yeah, so from the big picture point of view, what you what we should be seeing in all of our schools is we know that 7.6% of all children have got developmental language disorder, for example. So that's two or three in every classroom. Are we confident as school leaders that we are identifying two or three children in every classroom in our primary schools with developmental language disorder? And if we're not confident that we are, if we feel like actually we've only, we can only think about one or two, or there's only a small handful, you know, have a look for information about developmental language disorder. So. Um, the NAPLIC website, for, for instance, has got lots of information about DLD that's really, really helpful. Um, if we're not confident, have a look at some of the tools that are free to download that, that tell you what typical language development looks like. So there's a couple of documents called Universally Speaking that were developed by the Communication Trust that give you uh, what typical development looks like. And actually, you know, that really can help class teachers to think, oh, well, I've got this child who doesn't seem to understand what they've read. You know, rather than thinking it's a literacy issue, could it be a language issue? Or I've got this child that's really just kind of very quiet and anxious. They don't answer questions when they do. It's just single words. You know, could it be language that's underpinning that? And just starting to ask ourselves some of the questions around some of those children that aren't um, doing as well as we hope that they would that could be language that's underpinning it. So we know that children, for example, with language difficulties in particular, just don't attain as well as their peers. So if you've got low attainers, again, could it be language that's sitting underneath that low attainment? So just getting into that habit as a school, as a, as a professional of asking some of those questions. And that really kind of is led from the top. It really is about having that kind of ethos school to think about, you know, are we confident that we're identifying these children? And that can be built into school systems. You know, schools are really good at, at having systems in place that enable them to identify lots of different things that are going on in the school. You know, where is where does language sit in that? Where does that, you know, where where is it placed? Is it mentioned at staff meetings? Is it mentioned in your SLT meetings, et cetera? Definitely. It, it, it is looking at the whole school picture. And it is, you are trying to improve individual children, but... If you're doing lots of different things for individual children, it's really going to be hard to work out what's working. So it is, what is that whole school approach? And you also, if you've got lots of different interventions, you're going to be doing lots of different things and lots of different knowledge. So it's for me, on a workload issue, it's keeping things simpler. So you have to meet the needs, but it's not just diving in, try that thing, try that thing, try that thing. It's that more strategic view. Yeah, I think so. I think certainly the schools that I work in where's the, where they have that real strong strategic view of, of 
of, of communication across the piece, really. So this is not necessarily around children with special educational needs, or it can be, but where, we, where you've got that real strong leadership, it does just mean that it's kind of embedded and there is a long-term plan. You know, I was saying earlier that you know, when I was a speech therapist, when I first started out as a speech and language therapist, I would go into schools around individual children a lot and I'd kind of spend some time working with the class teacher. I'd spend some time kind of working with the support staff, et cetera, and kind of really build that relationship, really kind of explain the nature of the child's needs, really think about um, how to support that child in that classroom. And then the next year when the child moved up to the next class, I would do the whole thing again. And actually, there's some really good, strong, good practice principles that apply right across the whole of uh, education for children with, with special educational needs and with SLCN. That actually, if everybody had those, just those kind of simple strategies, that, that a lot of that could be planned for in the long term. So it's things like using visual strategies, having a bit more time for children to process information. You know, having a bit of a focus on particular aspects of language, like maybe vocabulary or checking out whether the children have understood. And they're very simple strategies, thinking about as adults how we use our language. You know, for children with uh, difficulties understanding, we just need to kind of shift and chunk our language a little bit so that the children um, can understand what it is that they're meant to be doing. We just need to pause a little bit more. And as a class teacher, I understand that's difficult when you've got 30 children. But it is doable to do that. It is kind of useful to kind of give that information to those children who know that will struggle, just give them a little bit more time to process and then just check out that they've understood. And that can make a world of difference to a lesson for a child with limited understanding because, you know, they know what's expected. They know what they're meant to be doing. And the alternative is, is that they can be quite lost and, they, you know, they're struggling uh, to understand. I was in a school the other day, actually, where, um, there was a couple of children in year six, um, there's probably about four actually in this particular class, who have got really significant difficulties with their receptive language. And they do that whole kind of, you know, distraction thing. So class teacher gives them an instruction and then they fiddle about with their pencil case for a bit and they get a piece of paper out and then they drop it on the floor and then they go to the loo. And they've just got brilliant distraction techniques. But actually for those children, just to kind of, summary of what's expected, ensuring that they understand, and sometimes a little bit of a starting point for them is enough for them to be able to then access what's going on in the classroom or at least get started with it. So just some of those kind of bigger picture, long-term, general good, good practice strategies in the classroom, I think a really good starting point before we then even get into thinking about like resources and, and interventions and so on. So when we were talking about this before we started recording, you were sort of saying each year you went into the class, next classroom and kind of taught that teacher at that moment those sort of strategies. So you're kind of doing the same thing every year and you basically sat there and assessed and went, this is, this is, there's got to be a better way. Then you thought about to do it. And this is a whole, it isn't, APDR is you'll do this every point in your life and everything you'll do, do we need Weetabix? It's, it's, it's Pandu review type of thing you'll do that everything you do and it is when you're doing this you literally went, it's got to be a better way okay what could we do actually there's gonna be two or three children in every class so this isn't just a one-off thing actually every teacher needs this so this should be a whole school thing with some reinforcement things but actually every teacher should be trained up because and i think so, lots of people say it's what works for SEN works for all 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. So the, just those kind of small handfuls of things that I mentioned. So things like, you know, giving children a bit more time to process, providing visual support, you know, those kind of frameworks to help with thinking. So those visual uh, strategies, doing things like having a bit of a focus on vocabulary, checking out understanding, just those four things. You know, if every class teacher did that, not only, like you say, does it support the children with um, speech and language difficulties, it'll support other children with SEN, but it's good for everybody. You know, it's good for all children. Uh, you, you know, no child who's typically developing will kind of say, oh, I don't need that visual support. It just helps to kind of give them that extra uh, kind of boost. So definitely. And I think it's just a much more efficient way of working. It's a much more, and, and that assess, plan, do, review kind of notion applied to the big picture works again for everyone so as a school what's our need well we've got lots of children with these things going on okay what's our plan we're going to kind of think about how to put those good practice strategies in across the board okay how we're going to do it xyz and then has it worked you know what are the, what do the what do the children say is it working for them what are we seeing in terms of results what are we seeing in terms of engagement you know how is it working for us so so yeah those long term sort of big strategy plans across the board I think are not a terrible place to start but with the best will in the world children will have additional needs they yeah. will need something else going on you know we we know that the ways in which adults use their talk is really important for children to be able to access what's going on but with the best will in the world if you've got children with very limited understanding or very um, kind of uh, minimized vocabulary or they're not able to construct a sentence or their social skills are kind of uh, impacted, then we have to do some work with them to teach them those things. They're not just going to pick that up incidentally. You know, you wouldn't give a child um, some long division to work on without teaching them how to do it. And again, with language, we wouldn't expect children to be able to talk and explain things without giving them the tools to do it, without teaching them the words they need, without teaching them how to construct those sentences and to understand. So we definitely need to think about, you know, where those things fit, where those kind of very specific strategies fit. Um, and we've talked about with the Education Endowment Fund and the Early Intervention Foundation that there is lots of resources and things you can do. Yeah, so there are the... Uh, particularly with the Education Endowment Foundation, I think, you know, there are things that they recommend as being impactful. So um, it's interesting, whenever you read anything about literacy, language is, is spattered all the way through it. You know, think about children's listening skills, think about children's um, uh, language, their vocabulary, their sentence construction and so on. And yet, very often, the focus is very much on the written word rather than the spoken word. And actually just having that slight shift of focus, that slight kind of tweak to practice uh, can make quite a big difference. But yeah, then in terms of those very specifics, um, there are lots of really kind of nice um, research examples of things that work. So we know, for example, that if we put that very specific and robust uh, teaching of vocabulary into schools, particularly in the, in the early years and, and primary, it can make a really big difference in terms of children's language. And um, we, we do know, for example, if we put some um, strategies in place for building expressive language skills and narrative skills, and we can make a big difference for children. 
and um, we know we can make a difference by working on spoken language that impacts on reading comprehension for example so there are some really kind of useful kind of strategies we also know that speech and language therapy helps so and uh, we know that actually you know there is a kind of difficulty at the minute in terms of accessing therapy so um but that's not to lose sight of the fact that it is really effective to kind of work with children directly on some of these things. Um, again, with social communication, we know that if we get in sort of early, uh, key stage two, that that can have a really positive effect on children um, when they go into secondary school. So it's worth thinking about all of those things and thinking about, um, you know, where and how we put those interventions and those strategies in place. I think the government is part of this issue. So you said language, listening, it's all the way throughout this, these interventions, support and literacy, but the assessment and the focus goes to writing. And if you look at the primary curriculum for spoken language, I think there are 12 statements which cover year one to year six. The new pre-key stage standards, there is no spoken language. It's reading, writing, maths, and there's nothing else from the government which really emphasizes the importance of spoken language. I mean, in the early years, there's, there's a focus on communication and language, which is great. And the, the, sort of the, the new um, foundation stage d does kind of emphasize, emphasize the idea of, of conversations with children, so that idea of turn-taking and so on. But yeah, from year one through to year six, you're right, there's just those 12 attainment targets, and they're not broken down in any way. So as a class teacher in year three, how do you know what looks, what, what, good is in terms of you know children being able to listen and interact with each other how do you know what good looks like in year in year two or year six and, and so it is it is really challenging and the nature of language is such that it's harder to assess than spoken language than written language for example so you know if a child can read uh, and you can get levels uh, kind of relatively easily whereas that's much more challenging uh, with spoken language but there are tools out there so just that kind of notion of the curriculum, there is a document, again, that was developed by the Communication Trust called Communicating the Curriculum, and it breaks down those 12 targets into um, what that looks like in each year group. So for each of those 12 targets, there is, a, there is a kind of description of what that would look like in year one, year two, and so on, and an I can statement. So you can use those tools. And again, um, where I've seen those used best is when it's, again, a strategic part of what happens. It's not about giving teachers loads of extra work to do, but it is just having that mindset of, um, you know, where is the spoken language and could that be something that's underpinning some of the difficulties that children might be having with other areas of their learning? Um, there are assessment tools out there that people can use. Um, some are kind of bought and some uh, are kind of free. You can, there's lots of kind of screening tools. So very old, the Inclusion Development Programme had a kind of checklist that you can look at. In the university speaking documents, I mentioned this checklist. So there are ways to kind of um, to do that. There's um, a paid-for uh, product called Language Link. Um, that tests children's understanding that you can use to kind of really think about how you want to identify and track children's language so that you know if you're putting something in place that it's effective because you're tracking it, tracking it really carefully. Um, so definitely all of the work that we do with our schools on any intervention, there is that initial baseline of the children's skills um, and then we put an intervention in place and then we reassess against that baseline to make sure it's working. And if it's not, we ask questions, why isn't it? What's going on? 
Is it because they didn't have the full intervention or is it because they've got something else more specific, a, a kind of a, a deeper, maybe more specific kind of uh, difficulty with a particular aspect of language that's getting in the way of that progress? So, um, yeah, really sort of important to be able to do that. And I guess acknowledging that that is really hard for language. It's not an easy thing to do. And teachers are not speech therapists. You know, they don't they haven't had that linguistic training. They haven't had training about typical language development or typical child development often. And so those tools that are out there can really kind of help with that. So, yeah, so as a government, reading and writing is important, but in reality, to really achieve that, spoken language is a big crucial part of it. So although the government isn't promoting that as a really key area, schools themselves should be keeping an eye on this, not just reading and writing, but also spoken language um, so they can actually see okay, it's a spoken language we're expected to be. If it's below, that is probably going to have an impact on their writing. So if you are trying to improve writing, spoken language is going to be a big crucial factor. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it, it's fundamental. You know, when we think, if we think about it, it, every time I kind of speak to teachers about this, it's kind of, they 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 know that and understand it. But the, as I say, the pressure is really to kind of get children writing and, and reading. But it but yes, the spoken word is fundamental to the written word. We can't write with can't, you know, if you can't say it, you can't write it. No. If you can't understand it in a book, you're not going to understand it when somebody uh, tells you it. So that that spoken and written thing are just flip sides of the same of the same coin. So yeah, it's as a starting point about this whole thing about making uh, best use of resources, about uh, implementation of, of strategies, the starting point really is about that inter that early sort of identification. And yes, applying that assess, plan, do, review kind of principle and process to that big picture and then thinking about what some of the detail might look like. The, the other thing that I did just want to mention was that, that um, what came out of the Burko a 10 years on review that I mentioned earlier was not only that we weren't using the interventions or the, the kind of evidence that we had as impactfully as we could, but also parents had a kind of fairly strong views about what makes the biggest impact for their children. And it was things like, you know, schools that are communication supportive. So just having that, that kind of uh, staff group that know about language. Um, it was where early year setting schools had information that they could share with parents about language and um, you know we all know that children don't come with a with a kind of instruction manual and you know parents might not know a lot about language so having that information for parents is really helpful and um, having those general strategies in the classroom like visual support like adults thinking about their own language like modeling of some of those kind of things for children and the other thing, there's a couple of things that they mentioned were um, break times. So as a speech therapist, I've often gone out into the break time. The children are very different, aren't they? It's yeah. quite often where um, things might happen that children with language difficulties just can't cope with. They can find themselves sometimes isolated, sometimes getting into trouble, sometimes not being able to explain what's happened very well. And so... I've definitely gone out into rainy playgrounds and done kind of various things to support the children in terms of interacting and playing with the other children, you know, working with lunchtime supervisors to think about, you know, what that could look like in the playground. Um, and then the other thing that parents mentioned was where um, speech and language therapists and uh, school staff work closely together, which obviously is not always possible and is a bit of a challenge at the moment. Um, but there are lots and lots of 
um, kind of training and quite often some free training out there that, that people can benefit from. So um, again, I can definitely signpost some of that free training. Um, and I think now after lockdown, we're all very used to kind of remote training, aren't we? We're quite used to kind of going onto Zoom or going onto Teams or having a look on various websites. Um, I would say that, you know, be careful of the quality of what you're looking at. I have seen a couple of training courses that claim to be um, uh, really good about speech and language. And, uh, you know, I was really disappointed, but others that are brilliant. So, you know, organizations like ICANN, like NAPLIC, um, they're really kind of, uh, you know, very strong in, in the types of training that they offer. I know with the Nuffield Early Language Intervention Program, there's training that goes alongside that. It's really good. It's really strong training. So just being careful about the training that you're, that you're accessing and that you're confident. And again, ask your colleagues, ask other heads, um, ask other SENCOs. And if, if you're worried, I'm very happy to kind of respond to people if they're, if they're worried about training that, you know, and whether it's kind of good or not. Um, but yeah, that training for staff, to do, just that baseline really to kind of get going with, I think is really, really important. I was going to talk to you uh, after recording about recording a training course on speech and language for us, but we'll discuss that later. (laughs) Um, So before we started talking, you talked about there's all these things you can do, all these interventions and things like that. And you mentioned the phrase implementation science. Yeah, this is a revelation to me. So I work with Oracy Cambridge. um, It's a group of academics and they are just exceptionally knowledgeable about oracy, which is obviously, uh, you know, part of part of what we do as speech and language therapists. Um, but oracy is really um, about oral language for, for everybody. But we can talk about that later. But part of that group, there's um, a member of the group called James Mannion, who's a kind of real expert around implementation science. He's done a lot of work on implementation science. And if you're interested in his work, it's called Rethinking Education. It's really, really interesting. So um, he does this piece of work, but also the Educational Endowment Foundation have done this big piece of work around implementation. And, you know, I, I suppose in my experiences is that, you know, there's various kind of interventions, various approaches, and I've worked in literally thousands of schools. And in some schools, you see it doing really well it seems to work really effectively the children do really well the staff really kind of uh, uh, kind of work really well with it and then you might have a school literally next door down the road and it just doesn't and there's lots of good reasons for that but what 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 i suppose the thing is is that you can have the best resource the best intervention the best speech therapist in the world but actually if you haven't got that implementation side of things right, it doesn't hit. It doesn't. It doesn't have the outcomes that you want it to, and it's really useful to think about that as a process. So the whole thing about implementation science is really thinking about taking that time out to plan and to plan well and to plan properly in order for whatever you put in place to be effective. Um, and so obviously I, I'm not an expert in this area, but I've done sort of reading around it and I apply this now to the work that I do in terms of, okay, I'm working with schools. As I've said at the beginning, one of the first things that we'll do is we'll really think about, okay, what is it that you want to change? What is the thing that you're worried about? What is the kind of issue or the problem? And then thinking about, so what are you able to kind of invest in that? 
So it's pointless kind of saying, yeah, we've got this group of children with huge issues around their language, um, but actually we've got no staff that we can allocate to that piece of work. If that's the case, if that's the case right now, then we've got to think of another way, you know, or um, yes, we've got all of this in place, but actually, you know, our main kind of person is off on maternity leave this term. She's back in January. Right. Well, okay, let's pause that till January. You know, it's really thinking about that that kind of program of work that you want to put in place. And as I say, um, it's spending that time and, and investing that time at the beginning to really think in the long term about what that looks like. So what are the outcomes that we're looking for? Who are we going to enable to kind of put this into place? Um, who is it that we want to kind of work with? Who is it that we're trying to reach here? And really kind of thinking about that from a kind of, uh, the EEF talk about the logic model. So what are the inputs? What are the outputs? And what do we expect as an impact from that? And there's, you know, we could spend a day talking, we could spend weeks talking about this. Yeah. Um, but actually it's it's spending that time and again, using those resources that are out there, they're free um, to to really think about what that looks like. So. Some of the things that, that we tend to do with schools, as I say, is to do that initial thinking at, at the beginning of the process of what is it actually here that we're trying to do? What is it actually here that we want to change? And are you in a position to start making some of those changes? Then thinking very carefully about who, who the staff are that are going to lead it. So the schools that we work with, we tend to say, right, who's your communication lead? And quite often that is the SENCO. And then we encourage them to put a bit of a kind of team together. So uh, James Mannion that I mentioned earlier talks about this kind of vertical slice of, of picking people from the school that are from different areas. So you might have your Senko, but you might have somebody that actually knows nothing about SEND at all. You might have a support, a, a support staff or an NQT or somebody from year six and somebody from, uh, from year one. So you, you kind of have a little crew and the reason that, that that works so well is that it's just not one person trying to push push this thing that's important. It's like everybody's got a bit of a kind of role in it and is bought into it and brings a different perspective. So an NQT will have a completely different perspective to maybe a, a support a member of staff that's been in the school working with children with SLCN for 20 years and actually bringing those people together enable some of the things that we want to happen, happen more effectively for everyone. It's just not one perspective that's being taken. So really thinking about uh, what that looks like. And as I say, I'm not an expert. I've kind of read about it and listened to lots of people that are really good on this stuff. Um, but we are uh, really trying to, to kind of pull this idea of implementation to our work. And we've seen um, some really interesting kind of outcomes from that. Um, when you look at the research around the impact of of implementation of of things that we try to change um quite often it's very limited and i think quite often that is because those long term kind of plans aren't in place so yes put an intervention in place the children get better but when you go back 2 years later or 3 years later or 5 years later are those things still in place and if they're not why not if they were working 3 years ago why have they stopped so I, get, I think I gave you the example earlier, Dale, didn't I? I'll, I'll go into schools and say, okay, what you know, what's happening in the early years? And they'll say, oh, well, we, we're using. So we have our own early years intervention. It's 
schools might say, oh, we've got the, the Nuffields early, early language intervention. Shall we stop doing that to do yours? And my, my response is, well, no. You know, if you've got something in place that's working really well, hold on to it. You know, keep it going and let's think about where the gaps are rather than trying to replace things that are already uh, are kind of working so well. I think it's important um, buying in and investing in. Yeah. So um for us uh we do assessment we do all about small sets of progress and i'm always i always listen to how people talk about assessment and we always have challenges and we listen to seeing feedback we get and i was listening to this talk and this person said um that as a school over five years we have tried six different assessment systems and none of them work and he went on that sixth one it finally hit him he didn't really know much about the system he got kind of shown how to use it and they didn't really buy in. And he said he then spent the next couple of months really learning about the system, really learning about what it did and how it could be used and the impact it could do and all of this. He then thought, right, how do we need to use it? And went through basically this whole implementation piece. And so they basically revisited the same system that you were going to use earlier, but revisited it in a much different way and put time in and, and really bought into it and invested time and effort into using it. And it's brilliant. And what he said from this, he goes, all the systems that we purchased and didn't work, all of them would have done what we needed, but we didn't invest in, we didn't buy in. So switching from that one intervention to yours, well, they've bought into that intervention. It's working, it's doing this. And if they just stop that and do yours, you've got to get the buy-in. You've got to get them, oh, but in that, in that one, we just did this. And it was so, oh, you've got to make sure buying the investment is there that they're going to invest in it and part of it you've got to try and show them what the outcomes what, what this will help towards this will work towards what are the challenges they're currently facing that this will solve and if you've got something working and you're going to change it it's like well if it's not broke don't fix it but what are the bits missing that this can support in and it's making it really clear what are we going to do how are you going to do it have you got time to do it how are we going to make that fit in and what you and the child are going to get out of it. It's making sure you really know that before you're diving in, I think. Yeah, I think, you know, the planning is really important. And not only the planning, but that um, that ongoing kind of reflection of, of how things are going. So, you know, it is really important to know the children to know the nature of their difficulties so that whatever you're putting in place meets that need. So, you know, I've been involved in lots of different interventions and because maybe people know me and associate me with certain interventions, I get asked, can you come and do this? And yes, it's sometimes that, that, that people need, but sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it isn't an intervention. Sometimes it's something that's just completely different. Sometimes it's just a tweak to good practice. Um, and sometimes it, it you know, it's something else altogether, but actually making sure that whatever's been put in place is going to hit the mark in terms of the nature of the children's needs is really key. I think it's also really important to ask people, do you think this is going to work? You know, asking parents, this is why we're going. Is that what you see as being the need? Because sometimes parents come with a completely different kind yeah. of view of things. So parents will say things to me like, well, I just want him to have friends or I just want him to be a bit more confident or I've noticed that you can't do working with a parent at the minute. And she's, she kind of said, well, I notice 
you know, it's his grammar that's really kind of struggling. So she's doing lots of work on his on this child's grammar. And actually it's working with parents to kind of say, well, if you want him to make friends, then these are the kinds of things that we might put in place in the classroom. But it might not look like friendship. It might look like something else. But that's where that's where we're going. That's our ultimate goal. That's the kind of that's the pathway. Um, but making people aware that that is the pathway and there is that kind of definite outcome at the end of it. I think it is about that collaboration. If there was a speech therapist, I would never go into a school and say, this is what a child needs without having a really good discussion about the context and the classroom and the school and his friendship groups and his interests. And I'm saying his, his, her, you know, whatever that might look like. Then obviously thinking about the evidence and what works, but making sure that that approach is right for you and your school. You know, some things work. You might find something that works with that cohort and actually the next cohort that comes through, it doesn't work because it's a different group of children. Um, so really thinking about that side of things and then thinking about where you can get support from that. Because as I say, schools, teachers are not experts in speech and language and nor should they be. But there are expertise out there that they dip into and, and use and, and, and using those local support networks. Um, and then in terms of that implementation, thinking really carefully about fidelity. So if there is a kind of recipe to follow, follow the recipe because then you'll get the same results. Um, if you have to change things too much, potentially it's not going to work as well as if you did it. So. We've got schools where we've done our intervention. It's three times a week. It's over a particular period of time. The children make, you know, 12, 14 months worth of progress. Well, what would happen if we just did it twice a week? Well, they're not going to make as much progress. And if you're okay with it, then that's great. And better to do that than kind of stress and not being able to fit it in or just do it for a longer period of time and see how that works. So it, it, there are some kind of uh, adaptations that you can make with some things, but, but, not, but not always. And I think the other thing is really, really carefully monitoring the progress, monitoring working. You know, again, I get schools coming to me and saying, oh, it didn't work. And then when you look at it, because actually the TA was pulled away to, to cover a classroom or the children maybe got only half or two thirds of what was meant to happen. So you're not going to get the same results as if it's done with fidelity for the kind of time that you need to do it. So that monitoring of progress, that keeping on top of things, that keeping people on board, I think is really, really important. It's important to remember that what works in school A may not work in school B. Definitely. Everything tells you it should. And while they're doing that, it's amazing. Let's do it here. That's always one piece of a much larger jigsaw. So that might be a school where actually staffing level, staff been in there for a number of years, they all know each other really well. Whereas in your school, you've got a, you've got a new head in, a deputy, you've got different teachers. So you're going to be learning about each other. And there's so many other things which you can go into, setting, parents, so many things, which means what works there might work better in your school, might work worse, but it's really about that assessing and reviewing part not just diving in, really kind of sitting there thinking, okay, why is that working so well? What else have they done? It's not just don't think of one thing on its own. Yeah, it's it's tricky, isn't it? I, my, my husband used to be a head teacher of a of a a provision for a, a pre it was at the time, so a, a, for children who'd been excluded from school, and you know, there's a lot of that kind of analysis of what it is that works. And he was very clear that it's not one thing that works. It's that real kind of jigsaw of things pulled together 
and and done in a particular way that makes a difference for the for the students that we've got in front of us and it's the same with language it's that it's that real combination of you know that practice in the classroom and those children being um, supported separately as well if they need that trying to link those things together wherever possible you know we know from the research that you know pulling children out to do something very different to what's going on in the classroom is less effective than pulling those children out to use really kind of strong principles of language uh, kind of development and support that links back into the classroom. So, you know, if I'm doing vocabulary teach, you know, if I'm doing kind of uh, work on sentence structure, I might use something like colorful semantics for building sentences, but I will attempt to link that to whatever's going on in the classroom. So I had a little boy last year, they were doing uh, the line witch in the wardrobe. So all of the vocabulary teaching that I was doing was linked. The colorful semantics was linked. The narrative work was linked and actually that made the world of difference for that young man because that, the work that we were doing was the work he was doing in the classroom and then he could make much more sense of it. So it is thinking from that perspective of how to make sure that it's it kind of links as much as it can. Sometimes we do need as therapists to do very separate work. So if we're working on speech sound difficulties, for example, you know, there is a particular kind of way that we need to do that. It can't always link back to the classroom. But where we can, I think, you know, it's important to try and do that. And that, again, is about collaboration. It's about talking to teachers, it's about talking to support staff. It's about, you know, did that work? Well, okay, if it didn't, then then why not? Um, I think the other thing is that that I've kind of noticed uh, this year from talking to, to schools is that quite often they will have lots of resources in cupboards. Um, so people will say, oh, we've got, you know, let's talk or colourful semantics or we've got talk boost in a cupboard somewhere which you know the people that were trained have gone now we're not quite sure what to do with it again you know it is useful to try and get have conversations with maybe local therapists to to just give you that little bit of extra training or support and then you're off with it you know you don't have to buy anything new you know there's not an extra kind of cost to that you've got You've got the resources there. What you need is just a little bit of updated professional learning, professional development. And again, that that can make the world of difference, you know, to, to those children and, and the staff that you're working with. I guess the other thing that I just wanted to, to mention was um, about ch the children themselves. So I've been extremely lucky in my role, at, at particularly at the Communication Trust, to do a number of different kind of um projects involving children and young people where we're asking their views on things um and i've kind of carried that with me and i guess as a therapist we're just in a room with a child quite often where we're just chatting and um asking them what they think works for them and um quite often children are just incredibly insightful about what works for them and so i do think it's always worth in terms of that implementation of drawing the children in and asking them what works best so particularly in high schools quite often the children that I work with they don't want to be seen as different from their peers they, right. they want to be in the classroom you know they don't want that lady coming along and dragging them out and calling the names at the beginning of the day or whatever it might be so it's really just having those conversations with those young people about okay you know this is what we want to try and do this is the kind of outcomes that we're looking for what do you think, you know, what do you, what do you need and, and what would make this work for you? You know, how are we going to do this in a way that's, that, you know, is going to make it effective for you? Um, and as I say, sometimes 
sometimes children sometimes don't know um but sometimes they are incredibly insightful and it's about asking the questions in the right way so particularly younger children will tell you often what they think you want to know yeah rather than what they really think um and so it, there are particular ways to go about this process that really um can make the difference between having something that the kids think that you want to know and what they really really think about something um and you know i think it is about just the other aspect of that is by its very nature gathering information for children whose communication is a real challenge is is intrinsically difficult so it is about having kind of different strategies to do that so again on the burco 10 website part of that project i got to speak to lots of young people with SLCN about what they thought and what they felt would be effective. And we use different kind of strategies to do that. And that's all kind of on that website. It's kind of free to download. And um, and it's just great. It's just great to find out from the kids what they think. And sometimes they throw you an absolute curveball and you're kind of like, oh, I didn't even think about that. You know, it's just really, really interesting. I think so. You mentioned earlier about the work you're doing as a speech and language therapist, linking it into the classroom. Mm. And we did a podcast with, it was uh, Carol Allen and John Galloway, and I think it was the AAC one we did, both probably linked to AAC, but it was all about um, if you're doing something over here and they only do it with you and they don't do it anywhere else, they're not really going to embed that anywhere else. So what you do by linking it, great, and actually that needs to go at home. So actually if you're doing this, supporting them in this way in, the th in those sessions, actually that needs to be happening in the classroom and at home. So actually that child can really learn how to use those skills and embed them and use that support. So actually they know when they're struggling, they can use it. Whereas if they only know it's in that situation, they're not going to use it and rely on it. Yeah, I think particularly for children who've got quite significant learning needs, that whole process of generalizing something that they learn in one place to another is very, very challenging. So definitely the time that I spent when I worked in special schools, I wouldn't, I, I don't think I ever withdrew children. I was just in the classroom the whole time because, you know, that process of, you know, here's a way of using your, your AAC or here's a way of kind of requesting something or kind of explaining what your needs are or responding to a question. That's much, much better done in, in the classroom. And actually, again, the time that I had in one particular special school was just complete joy because I was working alongside class teachers and support staff. And just as a therapist, you just get a completely different perspective than, you know, seeing children on a one-to-one. -one. You see how they are with the other children. You see how the staff are with them. And then you can embed the work that you're doing in, in terms of language into what's happening already. Yeah. You know, why make it a different separate thing? Um, as I say, sometimes we have to. But actually, where we can embed from the start, you know, I think that could be really effective. I think just that doing that speech, the language, line which the wardrobe language in your, but then they're using it here, they're now seeing the relevance and the benefit. And they, all that work you're doing here is going to get reinforced in the classroom, used in the classroom, just a big benefit. Yeah, completely. I think the challenge is it takes more time. So, you know, it's easier to go in with your plan and just kind of get on with it. You know, those discussions with class teachers, class teachers are busy. Sometimes they don't have the time um, it, and it takes more kind of thinking. You can't bring your ready made. Oh, I've got this way of doing it. So it does take more time. Um, but I think, you know, the benefits, if we can do it that way, are, are kind of 
amazing, really. I think it will be a lot, lot more effective because it seems like you, you, you're choosing what the child's interested in. You choose a hook, and in reality, if they're struggling there, and you're going to remove that struggle, that's going to be a big hook to that child, and they'll enjoy a lot. There's so many reasons to try and link what they're already doing rather than doing something completely separate, which has no relevance anywhere else. Yeah, I mean, as I say, sometimes as a therapist, you do have to do that because it's just the nature of the work that you do. But when it's when it's specific kind of areas of language, um, it, it's it's just you just get so much benefit because it's just you know it's going to be reinforced because actually you know it's happening in the classroom. Um, so yes, yeah, so sometimes it's necessary to to bring children out and do slightly separate things. Um, but a lot of the time, you know, embedding it into the into what's happening classroom or at home you know embedding it into the things that are important at home so again I can remember we worked with a, a, a little boy who was really one of the big issues for this young man was when he came to school every morning he was uh, running across the road he wasn't kind of stopping for the traffic so obviously huge issue for his parents um, and actually building language around that was really helpful for him because and for his parents because then it kind of was a very, very functional thing that happened every single day that had a, a kind of double impact of like teaching him particular aspects of language, but also um, helping helping him keep safe, which is really important. So yeah, it, it can be it can be anywhere. And I think that whole notion of picking out things that the children are interested in, particularly if they've got very limited attention or listening skills, you kind of you've 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 got over that hurdle a little bit to start with because you know that they've got some intrinsic interest in what you're talking about. So this whole podcast has been about implementing and making the best use of resources and things you can do. And there are times where you'll see something working in school A, you can just drop it straight in. Um, but you've got to bind. If you are going to drop it in as it comes without changing anything, you've got to invest and make sure you can do it as you're supposed to. So if it says these are three times a week, you can't do it. You need to either you do it three times a week or you find an alternative way or you come back to it later. Other well, times you oh, will need to adapt it. Yeah, definitely. So I think, it, you know, certain interventions are kind of a recipe to follow. If you follow the recipe, you get the outcomes. And if you are going to adapt those, you need to have a very kind of clear conversation with whoever is recommending it to see whether it's adaptable. Yeah. Um, but I think with anything that you want to do, that means you're looking to affect change, stepping back from a kind of strategic point of view and putting that big picture plan in place can make the world of difference. And I'm not talking just a, a year's plan. You know, my experience is probably two to three years to affect, you know, change across a school, uh, longer for secondaries, but for primaries, you know, you need a couple of years to get staff on board, for everybody to understand, you know, language is an important thing, and then to kind of think about, and that's not to say you don't just kind of get going with things, but obviously just having that plan in place um, makes can make a huge difference. I think that goes not just for these, but actually lots of things. So schools say to us at B-squared, how long does it really take to embed B-squared? In reality, a good couple of years, because you will dive in and you'll start doing stuff and you will get an immediate benefit. Mm. Um, and that year one would be great. But actually, of course, we've got this. Okay, how are we using this as part of our annual reviews? How are we using this as part of reports? How are we using this as part of parents' evening? And it's, it's, yeah, there's one bit you'll bring in, but it's got a time with other things in the school. And that's a bit that can take a year or a couple of years to really. And 
while it's doing that, it's growing even more effective. Yeah, completely. I, I talk a lot to schools about language being part of their DNA. You know, what if people come into your school, what will they see? Will they see that you really do prioritize, prioritize communication and language? Is it part of your DNA? Will you see things on the walls? Will you see things in the classrooms? Will the children be able to talk about things in a, in a kind of, in a way that you know, actually we, re we really do support communication in our schools and for all, you know, include for those children with, with difficulties as well. So you, you know, you, you know what that will look like. Um, so yeah, it, it does, it takes time. And it is, you'll bring it in and you'll see that effect and then you'll go, this is really good. We should actually embed this more and it grows in that school. And you said it becomes hopefully part of that DNA. Mm. Yeah. And it's the same as your work, isn't it? It's kind of, it becomes more than it is because everybody's kind of in, involved in it. And that's, that's brilliant when that happens. But it's got to be led. All of these things generally, it's not one person down here can be doing it. It's got to be involved with the senior leaders driving it and pushing it and making it important in that school. Yeah, definitely. And bringing people with you, you know, giving other staff that kind of, you know, almost that leadership. As I say, we talk a lot about communication leads. Um, but having that leadership at different levels so that, you know, the TAs are knowing what's going on and they're leading their sort of part of it and, um, you know, class teachers and so on. So, yeah, definitely. Excellent. So thank you for coming on the show today. Okay. Um, we'll be putting the links to all the things that Wendy's mentioned and anything else she finds in the show notes. So please have a look at those. Thank you for listening to the Sendcast. If you haven't subscribed already, please subscribe. You can find links to subscribe across different podcast platforms on our website, where you can also listen to this podcast. Please follow us on social media. On Twitter, we are at the Sendcast. On Facebook, the Sendcast. And on Instagram, the Sendcast. So quite simple. And if you listen to us through Apple iTunes or the podcast app, please leave a review and let others know what you think. And before we go, as always, I would like to remind you about to check out the Training for Education website. You will find a number of guests on the Sendcast, our speakers at our virtual Send conference, or have recorded a training course. And as I said, I'm going to talk to Wendy about that later. Training for Education is a great way to get CPD to all staff around SEND that is effective and affordable. So it's also revisitable, which is really good. Uh, visit www.trainingforeducation.com for more information. And as an exclusive gift to Sendcast listeners, you can get 10% discount on the virtual Send conference, future or past, by using the code Sendcast10. Now got six conferences run, so there's lots of really good CPD you can access. So thank you for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Sendcast. It's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.